This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, it's Nathan Eckersley here. Before we get into the new episode of my podcast, I do need to warn you. On this episode, you might hear me asking you to send me a message with your opinion. I love hearing your opinions, but the messages you hear me reading out on air are from the live broadcast of the podcast, which takes place on Wizard Radio Station every Sunday from 3pm UK time. If you want to get involved, make sure you listen live then. Please don't try to send in any messages for this episode, as your message won't be read, but you might still be charged. Anyway, that's the legal bit done, now on to the show. I'm Nathan Knackersley, and on the show this week, we are looking at the Channel Migrant Crisis and asking what needs to be done to resolve it. Plus, I'll be speaking to author and campaigner Dov Foreman. It's a packed show, and I want to hear from you, so let's go. This week, 27 people sadly lost their lives trying to cross the English Channel to claim asylum in the UK. A tragedy like this has unfortunately been on the cards for some time, as the illegal migration crisis has been happening now for nearly two years. This is a story which has had barely any media coverage or parliamentary debate time until this week as a result of this horrendous incident. People smuggling rings have been transporting people fleeing from desperate situations across the channel in whatever boats they can get hold of, with most of them being inflatable dinghies with outboard engines on the back. These boats are often filled far beyond capacity with people who give the traffickers their life savings, in many cases, in search of a better life in the UK. The Prime Minister had this to say about the incident in the channel. I just want to say that I'm shocked and appalled and deeply saddened by the loss of life that at sea in the in the channel um, I think that the, the details are, are still coming in but uh, more than 20 people have have lost their lives as as, as you know and my my thoughts and sympathies are first of all with the, the victims and, and their families and uh, it's a, an appalling thing that they have uh, that they have suffered but I also want to say that this disaster underscores how dangerous it is to cross the channel in this way. In light of this awful incident, we have to ask why so many migrants are passing through many safe countries just to get to the UK. Much has been said about France's role in resolving this crisis, and rightly so. France is a safe country. It's the seventh richest country in the world, with space and excellent infrastructure. It is not a dangerous place. 
The main reason why the number of illegal crossings has risen is because many of the official UK government's resettlement schemes to provide asylum and refuge for people leaving war zones and tyrannical regimes have closed, leaving many who want to come to the UK having little choice but to take a more dangerous path. These resettlement programmes are designed for those fleeing places like Syria and Yemen which have been in civil war for many years and they have helped many people live better and safer lives. We should absolutely maintain legal routes for migrants and refugees, but the years of neglect around maintaining and supporting these programmes are why we are currently in this position. Listen to the example cited by the former head of the Foreign Office, Lord Kerr of Kinlochard, in the House of Lords debate on this issue about the impact of closing the Home Office resettlement programmes. Our schemes in practice no longer exist. We've closed the Syrian scheme, we've scrapped the Dub scheme, we've left Dublin free, we haven't got an Afghan scheme up and running. The largest group by nationality crossing the channel in the last 18 months were Iranians. 3,187 Iranians came in the last 18 months. In the same period, one got in by the official route. One. How many came from the Yemen in these 18 months? The Yemen, riven by civil war and famine. None by the official route. Not one. A study by researchers at the London School of Economics found that more than 25,000 unauthorised migrants have crossed the channel this year, which is more than three times the number who crossed in 2020, and 80 times more than in 2018. To put that in context, the average population of a small to medium-sized town in England has crossed the English Channel this year alone. At a Home Affairs Select Committee hearing on Thursday, Immigration Minister Tom Persglove revealed that of all of those who have crossed the Channel illegally this year, only five have been returned to EU countries. There is no known number about how many illegal migrants there are in the UK, but the National Audit Office estimates that there are between 600,000 and 1.2 million. To put that estimate in context, the minimum number is about the population of Glasgow, whilst the higher number is around the population of Birmingham. When resources are already under immense strain and there is a chronic housing shortage in this country, we simply cannot take so many illegal migrants. The blame for this terrible situation must be shared between the Home Office and the French government. Had the Home Office not closed many of the resettlement schemes or replaced them with, uh, with them with the number that would be significantly lower? Furthermore, since the UK left the EU, Home Secretary Priti Patel has not created any fresh agreements with EU nations which replaced the previous treaty, allowing the UK to return migrants to the first EU country they entered. Now, whilst this was a bureaucratic and time-consuming process, it was an option open to us. Post-Brexit, the Home Office hasn't sought to replace any of these agreements, even an option anymore. The French government has a huge role to, to play in stopping this as well. The French Interior Minister and the Home Secretary have signed a number of agreements which have the UK paying the French millions of pounds to increase patrols off the French coastline, but the French have not upheld their side of the deal. In fact, in a speech earlier this week, President Macron said, for these women and men leaving the misery or distress in their country and attempting to reach British territory, 
France is what is called a place of transit. The French Coast Guard has, in some cases, actually accompanied migrant boats into UK waters, then turned around, therefore leaving the UK Border Force and the RNLI volunteers to ensure safe passage for the people on the boats. President Macron is up for re-election next year and is facing a tough campaign. He has acted entirely disproportionately in handling this crisis by acting like a tough leader when acting when he's just acting immaturely. Macron cancelled UK-French meetings on resolving this issue this week, supposedly because Boris Johnson posted his letter to Emmanuel Macron on Twitter and claimed that we do not communicate by tweets. When 27 people lose their lives in the English Channel, it is absolutely in the public interest for the UK Prime Minister to share a letter he wrote to the French President proposing five steps to solve this, which people on all sides of the debate agree were reasonable points. But Emmanuel Macron seems to be continuing down this path of punishing the UK for leaving the EU, as he has done ever since he took office. If Brexit was truly about taking back control, then this certainly does not look controlled. We now find ourselves with over a thousand people a day making the perilous journey in overcrowded boats, crossing one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world, and there isn't a single thing the UK can do to return them to the first safe EU country they arrived in. The Home Office under Priti Patel and her two predecessors, Sajid Javid and Amber Rudd, who were responsible for preparing for a post-Brexit Britain, never negotiated any return treaties or planned for a situation like this. Brexit is an opportunity to reclaim sovereignty over our laws and borders, and that opportunity is being squandered. The UK must do more to stop people coming to this country illegally and strengthen the current border protection measures. Equally, the French government must do more from their end to stop the people smugglers and traffickers putting the lives of the people in the most desperate situations in danger. This issue can only be resolved with both sides working together. I want to hear from you on this, so please do get in touch. You can tweet us or DM us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at WizRadio. You can vote in our poll. The question of the day is, is the channel migrant crisis just a UK problem? To vote on the poll, visit wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen to vote live. You can text us at no extra cost, only standard network rate supply at 07807 183538. You can email us station at wizardradio.co.uk and all of our contact details can be found on our website at www.wizardradio.co.uk. We'll be back after this. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back. Let's hear what you have to say. And our first message today comes from Reagan. Reagan says, The fact is, Nathan, that at the border itself... The, this is a UK problem. If people are boarding dinghies to make the dangerous journey across the channel to reach our country, 
then we need to be there to rescue them and make sure they are safe. There is a difference between political policy and humanity, and that's what people need to realise. Priti Patel and the government can decide whatever political policy they want, but they need to make sure that people are not dying in the process. If you have a policy of not accepting migrants, then at least make sure the migrants reach our border alive before you send them back. Right now, in taking a hard stance, the government are just letting people die in the name of a political policy, and that isn't acceptable. Well, thank you for that message, Reagan. And you're right to say that when the, the migrants are in UK waters, and we, we have to be very clear about that, that it is UK waters, because there's a very fine point within the channel that, that separates UK waters, the international uh, shipping laws, and then French waters. And of course, the, the English Channel is quite a narrow body of water. So that 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 barrier, that border between UK waters and French waters is very slim. And uh, it, it's important to make the distinction of where one starts and one ends. But when, when they are in UK waters, you're right to say it is entirely incumbent on the UK border force to en ensure safe passage, safe passage for the migrants and the, the the people crossing the the channel on the the boats but at the same time the the political policy needs to come into this to a large extent i mean yes absolutely there needs to be humanity shown and ensuring that that they do come across safely and that that no one dies on the the channel trying to cross but the political policy needs to be much stronger in mainly stopping people coming to the uk illegally re-establishing re-establishing those legal resettlement programs, those legal routes to claim asylum. That, that's the, the crux of this. The, no one is saying that we should stop all asylum claims. That, that's just wrong. If there are legal processes in place, then absolutely we have the responsibility to protect the most uh, people who are suffering in the most desperate situations, who are fleeing the most horrendous uh, situations and uh, places that are war zones or tyrannical regimes absolutely but the main issue around the channel migrant crisis at the moment is the fact that nothing is being done to stop the people smuggling rings and the human traffickers who are sending people across the channel in entirely unsuitable boats I and mean, if we if we look at the the weather this week okay we, it's uh, we've got storm arwen that's up in the, the, the northeast and scotland and Horrendous winds. E equally further down the country, it's gone much colder. As I speak to you now, it's about zero degrees to minus one. And in Dover at the moment, it's three degrees. Right? And, you know, it's this year we've had so far quite a mild winter in terms of temperature. And it, the seas have been relatively calm for the time of year. But as this cold snap comes in, the water temperatures in the channel are going to become much, 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 much colder. It, anyone uh, falls in the channel and it falls out of the boat into the water then there's an immediate risk of hypothermia and uh, of course more needs to be done to protect that and that's the risk people are taking by crossing the channel in this way you know it's not as not as safe as it was say in the summer or uh, earlier in the year when the weather was much calmer because fundamentally it is a very dangerous route throughout history 
people have uh, sadly died crossing the channel. This isn't a new problem. The problem really is the fact that there is a huge surge in illegal migration through crossing the channel, and that primarily is because of people smugglers accepting the life savings, in so many cases, of people who just want a better life. And this, uh, so far, appears the only way to access that if they truly want to come to the UK. But thank you for that message, Reagan. Our next message comes from Conrad. Conrad says, at the root of this issue, it isn't actually a UK problem. We are the ones left with the problem because ultimately these migrants are trying to get to our country, but we have to look at why people are trying to get here to begin with. The amount of countries that people have to pass through in Europe before they even get to the border. Why aren't people settling in Germany, which has been very welcoming of migrants in recent years, or France? If the routes that migrants try to take involves risking death by crossing the channel, then we need to ask why the migrants would rather take that risk rather than just settle in Europe. That isn't a UK problem. That's a problem with Europe, that migrants who are fleeing for their life don't want to settle there. Well, thank you for that message, comrade. And I, I agree with you. It isn't exclusively a UK problem, but also the, the routes that uh, many migrants are taking, it comes, uh, they come... Uh, a lot of them from the Middle East up into Eastern Europe and we know there are major border issues in Eastern Europe at the moment I mean primarily with uh, Hungary that uh, Hungary erected a fresh border uh, during the 2014-2015 migrant crisis that was spreading across Europe and they really reinforced their border measures and uh, adapted their uh, immigration and asylum policies so it's much dif more difficult to settle there so, of course, then the, uh, they go around into other countries. And we know as well, currently, in fact, as we speak, there's major, major issues on the border between Poland and Belarus. And again, that's one of the main ways pe um, people traveling from these countries are getting into uh, Central and Western Europe. And uh, of course, as you say, Germany, quite rightly, um, Germany took a, a huge, huge number of migrants during the, the big European crisis. But equally, Germany has had so many problems since accepting so many in terms of the strain on resources. And it, it's only in recent months and recent years that Germany's been able to try and find some sort of uh, equilibri equilibrium and uh, balance in trying to uh, ensure there are resources, there is housing for people coming in uh, this way. But at first, there were so many coming in that the system was truly overwhelmed. But one of the main reasons why migrants are coming to the UK is unfortunately because of black market trade. Now, the, one of the big things around this is that in France, the weekly allowance that uh, an asylum seeker and an or an illegal migrant is claiming is slightly higher than that uh, given in, in the UK. In France, it's a weekly allowance of what equates to £43.50 in France. But in the UK, as, as a standard rate, it's £39.63 uh, as a weekly allowance. But in France, there's over there, they use ID cards for work, whereas over here, even though uh, the, the new Labour government tried to introduce ID cards many years ago and that plan failed, we, we don't have those as a policy. And so therefore, it's uh, it's much easier to gain illegitimate work. And uh, that's why, because of the lack of an official ID card in the UK, that's why the black market 
is uh, such a desirable option for uh, people traffickers to put people to work in, especially those who are uh, fleeing these terrible situations and sadly get involved with human trafficking rings just to escape those terrible, terrible places. So that's a large reason why so many are coming to the UK. But absolutely, this is a pan-European problem. Every single EU country, and indeed other European countries that aren't necessarily in the EU but are part of the migration travel route, it's on them, it's on all of them to work together to try and put a stop to the people smuggling and trafficking rings and then look at uh, reinforcing border measures and stopping this huge, huge crisis. Thank you very much for that message, Conrad. And our next message comes from Rose. Rose says, Nathan, if the official channels to migrate to the UK or seek asylum here were actually open and effective, then I don't think this would be a problem. At the end of the day, hundreds of thousands of migrants are successfully making their way into the country anyway. So wouldn't it be better to know who they are and so that we can keep track, keep track of them, make sure that they are safe and have them officially documented? We are one of the causes of the migrant crisis because people feel the need to take that massive risk rather than actually try and enter the country legally uh, because they know that they won't be successful and if they do it that way uh, there needs to be some sort of coalition or agreement across Europe including the UK about how every country is going to accept more migrants so that migrants don't need to risk their lives to try and get to safety. Well thank you for that message Rose. And you're right to say that countries do need to work together, absolutely, as, as I just said in response to Conrad's message before. This is a pan-European problem, and countries do need to work together on this. But as I referred to in my opening remarks today, much of this on the channel is down to President Macron. Emmanuel Macron has always been an ardent, passionate Europhile. He believes in the project of the European Union, and since taking office, he has... Be, done everything he can to punish the United Kingdom for leaving the European Union. And it's, it's quite clear that the way he is responding to Boris Johnson's request for meetings and other ministerial uh, summits and agreements between the UK and France, he's closing them off because he sees it as the UK has left the EU, it's their problem now. They were in the tent, now they're out. And that that divisive nature as well is really going to add to this and so there needs to be much more cooperation possibly even a coalition as you suggest there Rose but the official channels again they, when they were first introduced they were really bold open schemes and there were many who did come through those schemes and, and rightly so the, these were terrible situations particularly in Syria as well when the Syria scheme opened. That was a very generous offer, much more generous than in many other countries. But as soon as that closed, that was it. And in other countries, I believe it is in Denmark, they had a similar scheme. But now that the uh, civil war and conflict in Syria has uh, been massively reduced and the uh, terror threat as well has been significantly reduced as well, some countries are actually declaring Syria as a safe destination, believe it or not, because the, the risk has been minimised so much through uh, military campaigns there and working with uh, local leaders as well to bring some stability to the country as well. And Denmark is now starting to return a large number of Syrian migrants back to Syria because that position has changed. 
So from from that perspective, yes, maybe there's a case to say that now they they claimed asylum in the UK because Syria was not safe. Now that it is starting to become a much safer country and other countries are starting to recognize that and uh, return some of them, maybe we could look at doing another scheme like that for uh, other countries where we've previously taken migrants and uh, there's the potential to return them so that there is extra availability there. But absolutely, we need to ensure those legal routes are open and people know about them. And documenting them is the best way to keep this country safe. Because, of course, with this illegal migration crisis as well, we don't actually know who is coming in. Because when they're coming in on the the dinghies, they land on the beaches at at Dover or at Dungeness, for example. And then they just go off into the world. I mean, they're escorted to the beach and then a lot of them just jump out of the the dinghy and head off and so from that perspective there are so many thousands now who have done that that for so many of them we don't know who is in the country and that is a serious serious security risk so you're right to say that we need to re-establish those legal processes and make sure that they are all documented well thank you for that message rose and a reminder that if you do want to uh, get involved in the debate then you can tweet us or dm us on twitter and instagram using the handle at twist radio and you can vote in our poll the question of the day is is the channel migrant crisis just a uk problem to vote on the poll visit wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen to vote live you can text us at no extra cost only standard network rate supply at 07807 183538 you can email us station at wizardradio.co.uk we'll be back right after this It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back. Let's check in with the results so far on this week's poll. Reminder, the question of the day is, is the channel migrant crisis just a UK problem? Well, 21% of you say, yes, it is just a UK problem, whereas 79% of you say, no, it is not. Well, please do vote in our poll if you haven't already. And to vote on the poll, visit wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen to vote live. And please do keep your messages coming through. And a reminder that all of the contact details can be found on our website at www.wizardradio.co.uk. Now, when we learn about wars in history class, and we will always say that we will never forget, especially when it comes to the Holocaust and other atrocities, and rightly so. The Holocaust was one of the most wicked chapters in the human story. But sadly, we have seen history repeat itself with genocides in recent history and one possibly happening as we speak in China. My guest has co-written a book with his great-grandmother, who is an Auschwitz survivor, about her experience as a Holocaust survivor and has been a passionate campaigner for Holocaust education so that never forget is more than just a saying. My guest this week is author and campaigner Dov Foreman. Dov, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me today. Thank you. You've co-written a book with your great-grandmother, Lily's Promise. Could, could you give listeners an idea of what the book is about? Yes, so the book is called Lily's Promise, How I Survived Auschwitz and Found the Strength to Live, and it was published by Macmillan 
on the 2nd of September 2021. And the book is written together with my great-grandmother, Lily Ebert, who is an Auschwitz survivor, but also a survivor of Nazi forced slave labour and the Death March, and also many other things in her life, which um, I won't give too much details about, but mm-hmm. it's all in the book. And the book is about her, her life before the war, what she lost in Auschwitz and her experiences in Auschwitz, and then having to rebuild a life and having and and how one carries on with life after kind of the depths of Auschwitz-Birkenau. And that's all discussed in the book. And then later on, I come in with my voice and I speak about the process of writing the book and making her share her story. Mm-hmm. Well, ju- just on that, how did you find the process of writing the book with, with Lily? Well, obviously, I'm only 17 years old, so mm-hmm. it was quite hard for me to balance school and the writing. Mm-hmm. But that's, um, I guess, a subject for another conversation. Mm-hmm. But writing together with my great grandmother was just an amazing process because it's not often that young people will get to spend so much time with grandparents, let alone great grandparents. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to delve so far deep into her family history, into her own history and experiences, which Mm -hmm. really wouldn't want anyone to have to relive ever. But going through that process with my great grandmother was incredibly inspirational Mm -hmm. and that I I really learned so much from it. And before undertaking the the project, did you and your your great grandmother ever discuss uh, her experiences uh, during the the war during the the holocaust so i can't really remember a time when i didn't know she was a survivor we were always very aware that she had survived the holocaust that she was an auschwitz survivor um, and that she had lost her mother younger sister and younger brother in auschwitz birkenau but other than that i didn't really know anything i didn't know any details i didn't know where she grew up i knew the name of the town but not really how, how her upbringing was similar to how mine was in the UK, very similar. And I think that's also something that struck me when I was writing the book, how similar Jewish life was pre the Holocaust to to now in London. And I think in a way that kind of when you read the book, it makes you realise how bad it was and how much people lost, because you often think that that this story is so long ago that it was very different and that you can't really relate. But when you read the book, you really realise, wow, It really wasn't that long ago and and they lived a very similar life to us. It's very special for me to have a bond with my great grandmother so close. As I just said, not many people will ever have the opportunity to spend time with their great grandparents, let alone spend as much time as I've had. And obviously the COVID pandemic was very hard. It was incredibly hard for everyone and it brought its own challenges for each family. But whilst there were many challenges for us, there's also a few positives that me and my great grandmother Lily were able to take from it. And one of those was that we were able to spend nearly every day together. So it was it was very special. And in a way, the, the lockdown enabled me to, to delve into her family history and write this book with her. And hopefully the book will be around forever. And hopefully people will be able to learn from her story now for, for forever. And, and it's just so important because if you forget the past, you are doomed to repeat it. And it's so important for people to learn the lessons, learn the lessons from the Holocaust survivors. Absolutely. And uh, another person who's uh, contributed to the book is His Royal Highness, the, the Prince of Wales. I mean, how, how did he get involved in the project? Yes. So thankfully, the royal family and the government in, in this country are very supportive of Holocaust education. The Department for Education only last week announced extra funding for the Holocaust Educational Trust, which is absolutely incredible news. And... The royal family have um, actually been patrons of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust for many years now. And I think it was in 2015, forgive me if that's the wrong date, but I think it was in 2015 that His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, Prince Charles, became the patron for the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust in the UK. And it's it's incredibly important because I think it reassures the Jewish community that, that especially in the UK, they will not allow something like the Holocaust to ever happen again, and they will not tolerate anti-Semitism. And 
the way Prince Charles got involved and eventually wrote the forward for this book was I think I just I emailed him like any random any random person can. I sent him a letter outlining the project and the importance of it. And it took a while, but I heard back from them and, and he was very supportive of the project and wanted to get involved and wanted to contribute a forward. I would say he he's met my great grandmother and me twice before, but that's that's really not I didn't have any back roots into into his team. I emailed them and, and thankfully as I said, they're incredibly supportive and the forward that he wrote, I think, is an incredible tribute, not only to Lily and the work she's done, but to all Holocaust survivors in the country. Absolutely. And uh, of, of course, you, you mentioned there that the, the government has been a really keen champion of Holocaust education and uh, making sure that the, that uh, awful, awful atrocity is simply never forgotten. And you and Lily um, attended the groundbreaking of the new Holocaust uh, museum that's uh, going to be constructed in Victoria Tower Gardens in, in Westminster. What, what was that event like? It was, I, I felt incredibly proud to have contributed mm. to, to that project because it reassures me and, and many other young people and especially the survivors who won't be with us in, in years to come that something like the Holocaust, as you said, will never, ever be repeated again, hopefully. And I think on top of that, it's incredibly important because decision makers will see this Holocaust memorial every day when they walk into Parliament. And so it reassures me that they will know their duty to stop hatred in its tracks wherever they see it. And it was the event was very special to, to stand there alongside politicians with many Holocaust survivors and many campaigners who, who have been working for many years to get this to happen it was just very special and to see that hard work pay off and for the decision to finally be yes that it can happen it was just it was incredibly moving and my great grandma was very happy and as I said reassured because she now feels and hopes that something like the holocaust will never happen again. Absolutely and we've got this holocaust memorial being built and um, there are other other projects going on around this but so something else that uh, has been re really interesting to look at is the fact that throughout lockdown, uh, you and Lily have gone on social media to tell her story. And you you've had an incredible response to um, uh, Lily sharing her story. I mean, what what's, have, you, have you done to uh, promote the cause of uh, Holocaust education and remembrance uh, on social media? So as I said, I, can, I can't really recall a time when I didn't know Lily's Holocaust testimony. So during the lockdown, not seeing Lily for the first, the first lockdown for two months was really hard for me not to be able to spend time with my great grandmother. And I realized, really realized how precious she is and that unfortunately she won't live forever. But what I also realized is that at a similar age to me, my great grandmother was taken by the Nazis to, to a death camp and her mother, younger sister and younger brother were murdered for no reason, simply because they were Jewish. That's all. And I really realized that these are the last moments to hear from Holocaust survivors. So the second lockdown finished, I was sort of struck by, I guess, a newfound determination to share her story with the world and to learn more about her story. And so I took to social media and I, I asked her to show me as many things, tangible things as possible that I could tweet and post on social media. And she showed me a banknote. And on, on this banknote were written 10 words of hope the start to a new life, good luck and happiness. And this banknote was given to her upon liberation from the death march by an American soldier, an American liberator. And he didn't write his name, he only wrote his role. And so I tweeted this banknote and I remember joking with my great grandmother that because of the power of social media, I'll be able to find him within 24 hours. I really didn't believe it at the time, but 24 hours later, we were having a Zoom call with a family 
And I guess that just shows the power of social media. Of course, there are many dangers and we have to be wary of these dangers, but there's also many positive sides. And if used in the right way, it can be absolutely incredible. And from there, I just realized that I have a platform that I can use to share our story. And we eventually moved over to TikTok and we now have nearly 1.5 million followers. And every day we have thousands of people asking questions and we try and answer as many as possible. And I think it's really been an incredible opportunity because we really are the first, not only great grandson, great grandma duo, but also Holocaust survivor um, and, and young Jewish person educating about the Holocaust on especially TikTok, but also on Twitter with such a large audience around the world. And it's, it's incredibly important because in 30 years time, young people will be able to take, they will be able to say, I know the Holocaust happened. Why? because I had my personal question answered by a Holocaust survivor. She was 97 at the time. She had the Auschwitz tattoo on her arm and I know she was there. And I think that's incredibly important and people often forget. And I think the reason this is so important is because people often forget about the 6 million who died. They see a Holocaust survivor, but they don't, people don't really realize how bad the Holocaust was because you see the survivors, but you don't see those that weren't there. And my great grandmother's story is not the typical story of the Holocaust, because unfortunately, the typical story is not told. The typical story involves the obliteration of entire families, villages or communities by guns, gas and starvation. And it's so important to share the stories that we still have with us today. And I think on a day like today, when we're recording this, it's Remembrance Sunday. And on a day like today, it's so important to remember, but not only to remember. And the late chief rabbi, um, Lord Jonathan Sachs, said that there's no words in biblical Hebrew for history. There's only a word for memory, Zahor. And the reason is because history is his story, an event that happened sometime else to someone else, somewhere else. Memory, by contrast, is my story. It's as part of my identity. And we need to do that with not only Holocaust survivors, but all survivors and, and stories of past events that happened because it's so important to learn from them. As I said at the beginning of this interview, if you forget history, you are doomed to repeat it. And the only way to build a better world is to learn from the past and, and build and hope that we that we can build a better future together. You're absolutely right there. And you, you've just touched on sort of the importance of remembrance for, for the, the Jewish community broadly. But I mean, of, of having researched this book and, and worked with, with your great grandmother on this, what does remembrance mean to you personally? It's a very tough question because I think there's collective remembrance on a whole and what it means for the Jewish community, but not only the Jewish community, that humanity is as a whole. And, and I could easily answer that, I, I guess. But remembrance for me is a tough one because as the great grandson of a Holocaust survivor, it's there's so many, it's very multifaceted. There's so many points which I would want to talk about. But I think it comes down very simply to what I said before and, and, and about how it can't just be a history. I do history level at school. And I really, when we learn about the Holocaust, the kind of shocks, it, it saddens me, but it's also shocking because you just can't teach the, the topic like a Holocaust in a classroom or through a textbook, it just can't be done justice. You need to learn it through survivor testimony and from eyewitnesses who are actually there. And I think remembrance for me is about making these stories part of our own identity. As you say, we, when we learn about the, the Holocaust in, in school, in, in history lessons, you know, we, we hear the, the figure of uh, there were six million killed in, in the Holocaust. And unfortunately, there are some who just take that as it's just a number. But with everyone, there's a story, there's a history in itself. There's a, a family there who lost a, a loved one, two, three, many uh, families who were killed in, in that time. And, you know, I, I, I had the, the privilege a few years ago visiting Auschwitz and uh, the, the camps in, in Poland. And 
you know, to have that tangible connection to this period of history, it, it does mean so much. And that's why I think you, you've really prioritized going on social media. Have, have you been surprised at how quickly the, the, the social media accounts and social media content almost blew up, if you like? Well, I think I'm just going to touch on the point you mentioned when you were speaking. It's so, There's such a large difference between actually hearing about these stories and the statistics between hearing personal stories. And then the reason I think our social media has, I'm going to say success, but I guess success is subjective and what does success really mean? But the reason our social media accounts have had such success and large following and, and large viewership is because we're showing this personal story and people are really able to connect and relate. And was I surprised? I guess at the beginning I was, but now you realise, first of all, how little people know about the Holocaust and they want to learn more. Um, but I guess what really shocked me was that people do want to learn. You see a lot of anti-Semitism online, a lot of anti-Jewish racism, a lot of racism in all kinds, in all forms. But I guess when you see that, you forget that there are good people on social media and there are people that do want to learn about the Holocaust. And, and I think it's really shocked me that, that there are nice people. And, and I think, especially when you're getting a lot of anti-Semitism, it's, it's, it's hard to kind of see past that and see the light. But something that I've learned from my great grandmother is you always have to, and that was last year's Holocaust Memorial Day theme, light in the darkness. You always have to see the light in the darkness. And the best examples of that are the Holocaust survivors themselves. And so I think, yeah, it's, it's been surprising, but also I guess people know so little about the Holocaust that, in a sad way, it's not surprising as well because people need to learn. And you, you mentioned there the, the very sad rise that we've seen in recent months and years in anti-Semitism. But with the social media activities that you are doing, unfortunately, there will be people who do post abusive comments and hateful comments. How, how do you respond to those comments? How do you deal with that, that level of abuse and racism? Yeah, so I think, firstly, a lot of people thought think that anti-Jewish racism, anti-Semitism, went away with the Holocaust, but unfortunately they're wrong. It didn't go away with the Holocaust. This year, anti-Semitism has risen 500% in the UK. The Guardian reports only a few days ago found that over 50% in the UK don't believe that 6 million people in the Holocaust were killed. It's very, it's, it's very, very sad to hear all these statistics. And I don't really know one friend that hasn't suffered anti-Semitic abuse. I mean, people think that hearing someone shout, you dirty Jew on the streets is something that only happened in Nazi Germany. Unfortunately, it happens today on the streets of London. But the way I deal with these anti-Semitic attacks online, which often can be a lot worse because they can say whatever they want to and hide behind their screen. Mm. How I deal with them is I delete them, I block them, I send a screenshot to the police or to the CSD, the, the, the Jewish Community Security Trust, who have been incredibly supportive. Luckily, the Jewish community and not only the Jewish community, politicians as I said before they've all been very very supportive of the cause and any as well as the police any hate crime I get people are very very supportive and, and there's an amazing community out there and, and anyone who gets hate crime I would definitely say do not reply block them but make sure you have a proof of that of their text and their message and send it to the right organizations including the police CST there's there's many organizations out there and that's that's how I deal with it like everyone else should I don't reply because if you reply you're only digging yourself more of a hole and, and they'll just continue sparing abuse at you. And uh, earlier th this week, there was a, an incident at uh, the London School of Economics with the is Israeli ambassador who was there to give a, a lecture to a group of students. And uh, very unfortunately, she was hounded uh, by pro-Palestine pro protesters and uh, just awful, awful abuse was held at her. She, uh, her uh, personal protection officers had to sort of 
forcibly move her into her car. I mean, when you see footage like that, what 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 do you think about that? How does it make you feel? I think what's even more important to note is that was on the 83rd anniversary of Kristallnacht. Mm. Not only were they targeting a Jew, they were targeting a Jewish woman on the street who who had, I mean, to have thousands of people housing abuse at you online is something else, but you can just block it. In person, you can't block these people. And it's incredibly scary for a Jewish person living in the UK right now. It's it's amazing. As I said, the, the royal family is on our side. The government is very helpful. There's so many organisations across the UK not just Jewish organizations, non-Jewish organizations too, are incredibly supportive. And I think it's 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 frightening whilst we have to appreciate the freedom that we have in the UK, the democracy that we have. There are times when it is very frightening. And when there was the recent tensions in Israel, I think it was um, last summer, there were there were convoys of cars driving through the streets saying, we're going to um, kidnap and rape your Jewish daughters. And I think for, for many people, that was the it was very frightening. And it's very similar to this incident with the Israeli ambassador, which happened last week at LSE. And I think, yeah, uh, as I said, uh, I, I don't really know one friend who hasn't experienced anti-Semitic abuse on the streets of London. I still wear my kippah proudly. I still wear Jewish clothing. People would know I'm Jewish if I was on the street. But I, I have many friends who wouldn't do that because they're too scared. And I think it, it's it's quite a sad reality, unfortunately. And and hopefully people people will care and, and, make, and try and make a difference. And I guess we, we also have to appreciate, I think, you can often get carried away and, and look at the bad side. But as I said before, you have to be the look at the light and the darkness and appreciate how lucky we are to live in the UK when when there's so many people supporting us. But of course, we can't we can't ignore the the violence and rampant anti-Semitism, which is rife throughout society at the moment. Absolutely. And, and do you think there, there is perhaps even a, an issue when it when it comes to freedom of speech, when we, we look at uh, d- discussing uh, Jewish issues and even, even debating uh, issues around the, the state of Israel as well? That, as you mentioned there, the tensions that arose around the conflict of Israel and Palestine as well. Are, are you concerned about simply having the freedom to talk about these issues? I'm not going to directly answer the question. Okay. Um, look, I guess there's there's a fine balance in life between when you go too far with what you say. And, and I think we have to encourage debates because that's that's the society we live in. And, and that's the democracy is built on, on free speech and, and, and debate. But there's a point when it goes too far and, and hounding people in the streets of London like they did to the Israeli ambassador last week outside LSE when she was there just for a simple talk is going too far. And yes, we have to have discussions. We have to have debates. That's how society works. There comes a point when, when it's too far. And I think I'm not going to be the one to draw that line. But I think we just have to be careful with our words. Because as my great-grandmother, Lily Abbott, survivor of Auschwitz-Birkenau, often says to me, the Holocaust did not start with the final solution. It didn't start with the gas chambers in Auschwitz-Birkenau. It started with basic anti-Semitic words, with basic racism, with basic tropes, and with basic with words on the street. And we have to be very, very vigilant. We have to stand up to hatred wherever we see it. And it's not acceptable for people to go around on the streets of London hurling abuse at young Jewish kids, at, at anyone really, not just Jews. It's not, it's not acceptable. And we have, to, we have to try and stamp out that anti-Semitism, that racism, wherever we see it. You, you talk about that, having the, the Holocaust and the final solution, and you know that it doesn't exclusively start there. But also, as well as that, you, you mentioned the, the light in the darkness. And we, unfortunately, we see issues around the world today where there are awful uh, abuses of, uh, of human rights. And sadly, in China at the moment, we see uh, incidents that are reminiscent of 
the early stages of the Holocaust and in uh, relation to the uh, alleged uh, genocide of the Uyghur people. When you, when you read about these events going on ar- around the world, do you, do you worry that we are starting to potentially forget our past? I think people have. I think you forget history very quickly and, and you forget events of the past very quickly, and especially as the number of Holocaust survivors dwindles with time. It's very hard for people to, to learn from the past without that, as I said before, without that personal stories, without that personal testimony. And unfortunately, throughout the world, I wouldn't say we're seeing exact copies of the Holocaust, but we, we are seeing certain aspects of, of the past repeating itself. And not even we don't even have to look as far as China. As I said before, we can look in the streets of London. The anti-Semitism is on the rise. Racism is on the rise throughout Europe, throughout the world, throughout America. And we, we really don't have to look so far away apart from our own society to see how people don't learn. And so I think we, we all need to look at ourselves and realise, are we stamping out hatred wherever we see it? Are we calling out anti-Semitism? Are we calling out racism? And if not, why not? Absolutely. You, you and uh, Lily, you've been doing some amazing work in re- really raising awareness of uh, Holocaust education and remembrance. Well, so to, to finish, what, what's next for you and Lily? What's your next big project? What's next? It's uh, <laughs> The book is still out in the UK and we're still doing publicity for that. It was a Sunday Times bestseller, but there's still there's still places and, and things to do. The book is coming out in America in May 2022 with Harper One, an imprint of HarperCollins. The book is coming out in, it came out in Hungary last week. It's coming out in Germany and across the world in various, I think over 10 or 12 different languages, which is very exciting. And then I've got A-levels to do this year. So I think I'll focus on that and then we'll see what's next. There's, there's still a lot to do. We'll carry on with the social media work and we'll, we'll carry on trying to make a difference. Okay, well, Dov Foreman, thank you very much for coming on the show. Best of luck with publicity for the book and also good luck with your exams. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me today. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much to Dov Foreman for coming on the show. And if you want to hear more about Dov's new book and about his campaign on Holocaust education, then the full interview will be made available as a podcast on your favourite podcast platform from Monday. Now, we're still discussing the channel migrant crisis, so please do continue to vote in our poll. Reminder, the question of the day is, is the channel migrant crisis just a UK problem? To vote on the poll, visit wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen to vote live. Let's go back to your messages. And our next message comes from Dylan. Dylan says, what is happening about people op- the people operating the routes, Nathan? I think a lot of the public think that when migrants cross the channel, they're on their own. They aren't. There are people who operate these routes. They get paid thousands and thousands of euros or pounds per migrant to help them cross. And yet we only hear about them being caught when people turn up dead. There surely must be a solution to catch these operators before a crisis. Well, thank you for that message, Dylan, and I totally agree with you. I mean, this—you uh, rightly say that people do tend to assume that the, they are individual people who load up onto any boats they can find and then just head over to the uh, UK coastline from from France. And the, these are highly skilled, highly operated migrant crossing organizations that are doing these you're absolutely right and as as i mentioned earlier in the show people are giving these human traffickers and people smugglers their life savings i mean it's just an incredible thing to think about that people who are in the most horrendous and difficult situations and the 
their only passage to safety that's open to them is to give, as you say, like tens of thousands of pounds or euros or whatever local currency is for where they're fleeing from or where these uh, routes are being operated from, you know, to give all of that money to them. And it's not a, an easy journey either. I mean, it can take anywhere between two and seven hours to cross the channel in one of the um, inflatable dinghies with an outboard engine, depending on the weather conditions. So it really is such a difficult uh, thing that's happening here. And what what's so frustrating about it all as well is is not the, the fact that these people are coming over uh, on, on the boats. For a lot of them, it's not their fault because there are so many who are in genuine need of asylum and refuge. There has to be so much more done to take on these people smuggling rings head on. And that's where this pan-European cooperation needs to take place and led jointly by the United Kingdom and by France. Thank you for that message, Dylan. And our next message comes from Phoebe. Phoebe says, if there are up to 1.2 million illegal migrants in the UK, then that is a UK problem. This is a problem that reaches every part of UK life. It's going to contribute to housing issues, homelessness issues, tax issues, crime issues. If the UK was more welcoming of migrants and had proper systems in place, then not, uh, not just would migrants feel safer, but we wouldn't have the knock-on effects of illegal migration. And can I say, Nathan, that when I say proper systems, I mean systems that don't require months of paperwork, which just isn't an option if you think you might be killed any day now if you remain in the country you're living in. This is everyone's fault. It's Europe's fault that they aren't shutting these routes down earlier on. It's France's fault that they aren't patrolling the border properly and aren't rescuing people when they're in their part of the channel. And the UK's fault for not providing solutions for the migrants themselves. Well, thank you for that message. Phoebe. And the amount of illegal migrants in the UK, yes, it is a UK problem. And it's been a problem for successive governments. It isn't exclusively happening since Boris Johnson became prime minister and this government happened. No, this this, this uh, stems back into Theresa May's government, uh, even in David Cameron's government, of course, because that was when uh, the major European migration crisis happened and uh, David Cameron did negotiate with the EU to get a bespoke agreement on only taking X amount of refugees. But uh, when you talk about the, the European uh, faults around this, much of that is down to the fundamental principle of the European Union, and that is having open borders within 26 different countries. I mean, as is the case with any country around the world, some are obviously going to be bigger than others. And when you've got such a huge landmass with entirely open borders, as soon as uh, one of the Ill illegal migrants comes into the border, then that's it. They're, they're free to go wherever they want within the European Union. And that obviously, as you say, it has knock-on effects. And the, the proper systems that you're talking about, they do need introducing. But the, the UK does need to uh, obviously reinstate a lot of the uh, official resettlement schemes. And uh, as a, a prime example of this, the, the horrendous situation in Afghanistan from earlier this year. Yes, there, there is a minister responsible for establishing this uh, Afghan resettlement program uh, no, known as ARAP. And uh, the, you know, Victoria Atkins, her, her name is, she's based in the Ministry of Justice and jointly with the Home Office, but it's her responsibility to establish this. But, you know, we're many months on since uh, Afghanistan fell to the Taliban, and yet the, there are very few who are able to come in 
legally yet because that scheme isn't fully in place yet and not yet completely operational. But, you know, and that that's really difficult. And for many fleeing the Taliban, which are just the most atrocious organization who have no regard for human rights, no regard for uh, the rights of women and girls. And yet there are many who will have no other choice but to flee this horrendous and oppressive regime. But if, if they've got uh, as particular interest in coming to the UK, then, you know, that there isn't anything available for them legally yet. And so these illegal routes are the only option. So yes, you're absolutely right to say that the proper systems must be introduced. And, you know, it all comes back to this idea that this is a pan-European problem that needs cooperation with everyone involved, every single country involved in uh, being a part of the migrant routes and being uh, part of the passage. But fundamentally, this has to take on the human trafficking rings that are arranging these migrant routes. Thank you for that message, Phoebe. And our final message of the day comes from Blake. Blake says, It is absolutely shocking that you have a president like Macron being petty enough that he is allowing migrants to die and not even engaging with the UK to help solve the problem. Can you imagine if that was Boris? If Boris Johnson refused to speak to France because of some sort of unrelated beef whilst migrants were dying on the channel, he would be condemned all over the news. The leaders of the EU would be calling him out and he would be the devil. The French government are doing the same, but with no consequence. It is shocking. And thank you for that message, Blake. And I completely agree with you. President Macron has behaved atrociously throughout this whole uh, crisis. And he's in, in some cases even been facilitating it to a large extent. As I said in my opening remarks, there are some cases where the French Coast Guard have simply been accompanying the uh, inflatable dinghies to English waters and then simply turning around and just saying, oh, well, it's their problem now. The, the boat's in their waters. And the, the amount of boats that are coming across, of course, it's putting an immense strain on the UK border force. Absolutely. And of course, it's not just the UK border force who have to deal with this. Of course, it's the RNLI, the uh, Royal National Lifeboats uh, Institute, the, the uh, entirely volunteer-based organisation that uh, is, they are even are having to leave their day jobs to come out and help uh, guide the boats into safe passage. So, you know, this is a major issue and even the volunteers are putting their lives at risk just as the migrants are by coming across. So you're absolutely right to call out President Macron on this. Well, thank you for that message, Blake. And I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week. But before we go, let's check in with the final poll result. A reminder, the question of the day is, is the channel migrant crisis just a UK problem? Well, 32% say yes, it is. And the rest of you say no, it is not. Well, thank you very much to everyone who's listened to this week's episode. And thanks to everyone who sent in messages live. If your message wasn't read out this week, then please do try again next week. Thank you to my guest, Dob Foreman. I'm Nathan Eckersley, and I'll be back at the same time, same place next week. Goodbye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.